You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Now as we turn to Matthew chapter 17, it's important to remember that we're getting close. We're getting closer and closer to the crucifixion of Christ. His fame is at an all-time high. People are chasing him all over Israel as a result of his miracles. He's garnered attention from the religious leaders in a heightened sense and to a heightened degree. And Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples in a fresher and stronger way than ever before. And in chapter 16, of course, we saw him question them concerning who do others say that I am and who do you say that I am. And of course, Peter made the confession that Jesus was and is the Christ. And then Jesus gave them a teaching concerning, first of all, what was going to happen to him physically in Jerusalem. But secondly, what it means to be his disciple. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. Don't try to save your life because you'll actually lose it. Instead, lose your life and you'll find your life. But at the close of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus made a statement where he said to there in verse 28 that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I explained to you that there are various perspectives and views on how that particular promise of Jesus would be fulfilled. Who were those that were standing there who would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? And uh, I believe that it had to be not the entire group. I believe that it had to be more than just, well, uh, Judas is excluded, but the rest will see. I think that Jesus was specifically talking about Peter, James, and John and this next scene in Matthew chapter 17. It says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So six days, it says in verse one, after Peter's confession there in Caesarea Philippi, six days after this statement that there are some of you standing here who will see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Six days after those events took place, Jesus took three of his 12 disciples up to a high mountain by themselves. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now, it's obvious from studying the Gospels that Peter and James and John were the inner circle of Christ. They were went further with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, were sort of his prayer companions, although they fell asleep in those three distinct hours. Uh, they were the ones invited into the room of Jairus's daughter when Jesus raised her from the dead. And there were these different moments throughout the life of Christ where Jesus would 
directly reveal himself and pour into Peter and James and John. He loved all of the disciples, had a distinct calling for all of the disciples. But Peter and James and John had, had a unique calling upon their lives. James, of course, would be the first apostle martyred in the book of Acts, the first apostle killed for his faith. There were other Christians who would die for their belief in Christ before James, but he was the first apostle to die for his faith. Peter, of course, was very significant in the early church, a great leader there in the early church, but Jesus had said something about the keys of the kingdom being given to Peter. I think in one sense he used those keys in Acts chapter 10 when he preached the gospel to Gentiles for the very first time. It was through Peter's words that the Gentile world began to receive the message of the gospel. And of course, John, a writer of scripture, wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but wrote a significant book in writing the book of Revelation. He received a, an insight about Jesus that no one else had received. And Jesus is here pouring into this significant and all-important inner circle. And so he takes them up onto this high mountain by themselves. And in scripture, when you see a high mountain, you understand that this is a special occasion. Years later, when Peter wrote his second epistle, he would refer to this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, as the holy mountain. This was a, a moment of great encouragement and uh, in the lives of these three men. And it tells us in verse 2 here in Matthew chapter 17 that Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, what you have happening here is not some external glory shining upon Jesus, but you have the glory that was residing inside of him becoming visible up there upon the mountain. Now, this is interesting because Luke tells us that Jesus went up onto the mountain to pray. There was this transformation, this transfiguration that took place as Jesus cried out to his Father. And real true spirit-led prayer leads to great transformation in the heart and the life of the prayer. We often think that we're going to God in prayer in order to change God, but the greatest result of prayer is to be transformed, to be transfigured ourselves. Now, this word transfigured in verse 2, it has within it the idea of metamorphosis. Now, this word is used a couple of other times in the New Testament, and when they're spoken in the New Testament, this is a word that is used to describe us. The transfiguration or the transformation that we go through in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think what's happening here is that the Lord is showing us, in one sense, how maturity unfolds in our own lives. You see, when you give your life to Christ, you're a new creation in him. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us. However, it's not as if you go through a transformation overnight. There's a slow process of change. And this change is not just natural. It is spiritual. 
So Christ is inside of you, but as you fellowship with him, you are changed into the same image. You are turned into and, and become more and more like Jesus as you fellowship with him. You are transfigured. You are metamorphosized into the image of Christ himself. Every single one of us is changing. We're either decaying or we're becoming more glorious. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 that through fellowship with Jesus, we can be transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. And so here's Jesus transfigured before his disciples. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, in verse 3, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now Moses and Elijah obviously are representatives of the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. And uh, this, of course, speaks of life after death, the fact that both of these men are around. And I love the little insight that here is Moses in the promised land. He had to go to a mountaintop and die looking from that mountaintop into the promised land, but not allowed to enter in. Here he's allowed to enter in as he fellowships with Christ. The other gospels tell us that he, they spoke to Jesus concerning his departure. They were encouraging him, I think, concerning the cross. And Peter said to Jesus, so the disciples are there, they're watching this whole event unfold. They see Jesus, his transformation. They watch him speaking with Moses and Elijah. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And so Peter here, he has an answer. He, he's got something to say. I think in one sense, you know, he just kind of really didn't know what else he should say. And so he says this, you know, hey, Lord, let's, uh, let's build three tents. We could all stay here. This is good for us to be here. And uh, this, in one sense, it, with his words, it sounds very honoring but, in, but on the other hand, he seems to be putting Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same plane. And of course, they needed to see that Jesus' voice should override the voice of Moses and override the voice of Elijah, should override and fulfill the law and the prophets. But he says, it is good that we are here. I think that we often, as believers, agree with the statement of Peter when we have a mountaintop experience or moment, you know, things are good. We're in, in a, a conference or a retreat or maybe we have the opportunity to go to a Bible college or something like that. And we're in these wonderful and healthy and good environments full of worship, the glory of the Lord. And we think it's good for us. It's good that we are here. It might have been good for them to be there, but it would have been horrible for the world who was dying of the cancer of sin had the disciples not come down from that mountain. There was a cross, of course, for Jesus to accomplish and a gospel for these men to preach. There is work to do. And as he, verse 5, was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so, as I said, Peter, in one sense, was putting Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the same level. But here, the Father speaks, as he had done at the baptism of Christ, and as he would do later in the life of Christ, the Gospel of John tells us. Here, the Father speaks from this cloud and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. You know, he fulfills and interprets the law and the prophets. Hear him above any human teaching any human philosophy set your mind your focus your attention upon jesus peter listen to him and when the disciples heard this they fell on their faces and were terrified but jesus came and touched them saying rise and have no fear and when they lifted up their eyes they saw no one but jesus only and this is of course the point of the whole story they're to open their eyes and see that Jesus is all there is. And as you read the Law and the Prophets today, you should see, hear, and discover Christ even in passages like that. So a wonderful moment in the life of these disciples. And it says that, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, this is something that they would do. Peter apparently waited. It wasn't until 2 Peter chapter 1, as I referenced earlier, that Peter began to write of Jesus's ascension. But Jesus says, listen, don't tell anyone this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, verse 10, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Yeah, they'd begun to really realize here that to confess Jesus as Christ and to, as they heard what Moses and Elijah had spoken to Jesus of, they started realizing this is serious. The Messiah is truly amongst us. And they started remembering that the scribes had always and consistently taught that Elijah would come first. So they asked that question, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Come. Now, the scribes were saying this because of the last prophecy of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, God said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so the prophecy here is that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah the prophet would be sent by God. And the Messiah was always tied to the day of the Lord. And so the disciples here are saying to themselves, well, listen, we, we know that he's the Messiah. So where in the world then, that the day of the Lord is here, where in the world is Elijah? And Jesus said to them in verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now this is a wild statement 
from Christ. The disciples again have asked, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus first, in verse 11, says, Elijah will come, he will restore all things. Then secondly, Jesus said, Elijah has come, and they took him and they did whatever they wanted to him, they killed him, and the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples knew that Jesus was not referencing a literal Elijah, but that he was referencing John the Baptist. And in another place, Jesus said, he is, if you are able to accept it, Elijah who is to come. So personally, I believe that Elijah still will come before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord for the disciples, they thought that the Messiah in his coming was definitely linked to the day of the Lord. And he is in his second coming. But the first coming that Christ accomplished the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, the day of judgment, at least upon mankind, is and was not yet. And so he was not actually at that moment in time ushering in the day of the Lord. That is yet future. And I think that in that future moment, the prophecy in Malachi 4 and from Jesus here about Elijah returning will come to pass. Uh, but here, Jesus is also speaking of John the Baptist, who, as Luke tells us, came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Now, verse 14, they come down the mountain, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now, this is the reason that the disciples needed to come down from the mountain. This is the reason that building a tent up there on the mountain and never departing would be so ineffective. There was a broken and fallen world that needed help. And so Jesus comes down the mountain to this scene of chaos. And I found that this is often the pattern in our own lives. We come back from a great spiritual experience, a wonderful spiritual victory. And uh, you leave that mountaintop and the trials do come. Even this week, as I'm teaching this particular study, this previous weekend, we had some wonderful victories. Watched God do some great and wonderful things dreams that we've had, that I've had, literally coming to pass. Just wonderful to watch. But yet as the week churns on, some difficulty, some trials, some just moments of pain. It's just the world that we live in. And so Jesus comes back and he sees this crowd and a man comes and there's this, you know, frustration and difficulty and, you know, he says, my son, he's an epileptic. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And uh, just, a, just a horrible scene. And, you know, Jesus steps into this moment of disaster. One thing I've discovered about Satan over time is that he loves to go after the young. 
You know, if he can get to our children, he loves to corrupt them, to destroy them. And that's what we, he was doing in the life of this young man. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. So you have here all the, these different characters. You have the religious leaders who were criticizing the disciples for being unable to cast out the demon, even though they couldn't do it themselves. You have the disciples who had been left at the bottom of the mountain, uh, experiencing some futility and failure. You had a crowd of onlookers, and you had the man and his boy. And this is just a dark scene. It, it's it's a it's a failure. They're unable to cast out this demon. And Jesus says, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be uh, with you? And of course, the question is, who is he referring to when he talks of a faithless and twisted generation? The disciples, the onlookers, the critics, the man, who, who is Jesus referring to? I think he's probably referring to a collective, every single person that was there. All of the characters, all of the uh, onlookers, all the critics, all, the man, the disciples, I think all of them, there's this faithlessness involved. And Jesus says, how long am I to be with you? In other words, is there anything that I can do to stir your faith? The disciples needed to learn how to be able to do this kind of thing without the actual physical presence of Jesus. And, and Jesus said, bring him here to me. Then the disciples, and as we read, of course, in verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Now, verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. And so Jesus here is questioned by the disciples. Why could we not cast out this demon? And Jesus' answer is very intriguing. He says, because of your little faith or because of your unbelief. You know, they might have blamed it themselves on critics or the conditions that were there, maybe a lack of faith in other people. But Jesus looked at them and said, no, it was because of your, your little faith. You know, you need to have a, a growing, a stronger faith in me. And, you, and he said to them, you don't really need to have a, a huge faith. You just need to have faith like a grain of mustard seed. That's a very small amount. But if you do, and of course, he's speaking with hyperbole. He says, you'll say to mountains, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So he tells his disciples, you just need to have a little bit of faith operating inside of your life. Now, I'm not a person who likes to speak of faith like it's some kind of mysterious attribute that if we exercise it, then God is like a genie who is bound to our wishes and our whims. No, we've already seen that prayer is designed to change us, not to change God. However, 
it is important to operate and to live by faith. Over and over again, we learn that the just will live by faith. We walk by faith, the New Testament teaches us, and not by sight. We are to be a faith people. And we need this exhortation constantly because we can walk in faith one day and the next day attempt to and lean towards walking by sight. And for me in my life, the greatest things that have ever occurred in my life have been as a result of walking by faith. And the greatest catastrophes in my life have usually been caused by walking in some degree by sight. Now, some manuscripts tell us in verse 21 that Jesus told them, uh, but this kind comes out by prayer and fasting. And so Jesus is indicating there, if it's in the original, that there's a way to cultivate your faith, and it's through prayer and through fasting. Well, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. Now, as they were gathering, verse 22, in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So again, Jesus makes it clear what's going to happen to him. Listen, we're, we're going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill him. They're going to kill me. But don't worry. He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. They had a hard time focusing on the resurrection portion of Jesus' statement. He'll be raised on the third day. I'm sure they weren't thinking of a physical bodily resurrection at that point. Probably some kind of spiritual talk from Jesus. And so they focused in on his betrayal. And they focused in on his death. How could this take place? How could this occur. Now, verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he had said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So an interesting statement. They go up to Peter trying to trap him and they say, hey, you know, why isn't your teacher paying the tax? Uh, doesn't he need to pay this temple tax uh, kind of thing? And uh, so he said, well, yeah, sure he does. And then Jesus gets in front of Peter and says, hey, Peter. Listen, do the kings of the earth take taxes from their sons or from others? And Peter said, well, from others, verse 26. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. If this is the temple tax being uh, referred to, then uh, what you're dealing with here is Jesus saying, why would the father be collecting taxes from me for I am the son? However, verse 27, Jesus said, Not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. 
take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So uh, Jesus here, you know, Romans 13 tells us that we're to submit to governing authorities. Jesus isn't looking to give someone an unnecessary line of offense. So he tells Peter, hey, go throw a hook out there and catch a fish. And, and uh, when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that shekel and give it to them for me and for yourself. That's how we'll pay for our taxes. That was the exact amount of money needed for two men. Serious style points from Jesus here in fulfilling uh, the tax requirement in that way. But of course, the wonderful lesson that Jesus Christ provides. Amen. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.